All right, I believe some gentlemen are coming with some Bibles, and once you get them, if you need one, turn to Acts chapter 13, please. Okay, first things first, I've got to take my watch off. A couple churches back, I had my youngest daughter, who I can get away with saying this because she's not here today, leaned over to my wife and said, there's no clock in the back. Tell dad, make sure he takes his watch off. <laughs> She didn't realize that when I get up to the pulpit and I knew this story, she would get embarrassed. So she's not here to get embarrassed. I did take my watch off. I know we're supposed to end at 1130, right? Just making sure most of you are still awake. All right. My wife and my daughter and I, my youngest daughter, had the opportunity uh, just the last three weeks to be in Colorado uh, for a missionary training program. And among many, many things that we went through, one of the things that was so heavily emphasized and we worked at in great detail was building community. Uh, these were people who were going to be missionaries to many places around the world, many, many locations on East, in, in Asia, in Europe, uh, just a unique group. But one of the things that especially was stressed was the issue of community, building community among ourselves. And it, was, it truly was a, a wonderful time, uh, building relationships with the folks. But as, I, as we were coming back, and then again as we were coming this morning, you know, I think of Community Baptist Church. The Baptist part is important. The church part of that name is important. But in the 10 years, because I was, I was able to be here for your 10-year anniversary, uh, marking that major milestone and listening to Johnny Cash sing, We've Been Everywhere, Man. Um, <laughs> And you have, because I almost was thinking I should have been going to the other place, the Patrick Henry Middle School. Um, one thing that has stood out in a huge way at this church is the community part of Community Baptist Church. Um, it is always for our family a, a privilege to come here, to be here, to see new faces, to see some of the same faces. I won't say old faces because then people just feel bad. Uh, same faces, new faces. It's, it, it really is, because from day one and through these 10 years, we have seen that not only has a church grown, but a community has grown. And, and that is a huge thing. That is not often seen in churches in America. And, and so you are blessed and privileged to be a part of this as God has called you together. We are blessed and privileged to be a part of it as well as an extension of this ministry and to have dear friends like, like Ken and Rich who have just been not just... Uh, friends to tell us what's going on here and help us with money and all this kind of th things, but to be true friends, to encourage, to pray, and to keep up with what's going on in our lives. And we are certainly eternally grateful for that. So it's a joy to be with you this morning. And uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, but what we're going to do as we do that is kind of at a launching point, and then we're going to hit a landing point in chapter 15. Before I do that, I'm going to forget to say this, so I'll say this now. Uh, people have asked my wife, wondering how she's doing with her surgery. She had her first two surgeries, doing very well, recovering from her second one uh, in March, March 8th. She has her third surgery this week, uh, this Wednesday, November 9th. She will have a surgery three to six hours long, and uh, this is the beginning of putting her back together. And so if you, if you would think of it uh, during that day, if you think of it on Wednesday to pray for her, I know she would greatly appreciate that for the surgery and then the recovery. And then, Lord willing, if everything goes well with that, sometime in the spring, maybe April or May, will be the last phase of the reconstruction, putting her back together in her mouth. And hopefully after that, she'll be all back together doing much better and we'll be on our way back to China. 
So this week, Wednesday, November 9th, I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to tell you that. Acts chapter 13. Uh, before we look at this passage, I start by just kind of drawing your attention to one thing that happens in the midst of the Gospels as Jesus has a crowd. Um, we live in a country that is filled with mega churches. More and more churches are jumping into the ranks of mega churches. Um, and megachurches seems to be the measure of success too often in an American economy. We measure things, as we often jokingly say in ministry, by bodies, bucks, and buildings. Um, you guys have had a lot of buildings, and the bodies are growing. I don't know about the bucks part of it. But obviously none of those are really good measuring sticks when it comes to what a church is, because a church is made up of disciples. The Great Commission is making disciples, not just a bunch of people to pile into a room and go out feeling good. Because quite frankly, there will be times, if we're honest, through preaching, we may not feel good if it's the right kind of preaching. I mean, if you want to feel good all the time, go see Joel Osteen down in Houston or something. All right? Um, Ken may not make you feel good all the time. I don't think, but I'm sure he does a lot of times. But Jesus had this huge crowd following behind him in Luke chapter 14. And in verse 25, it says, as this huge crowd is following him, literally he did this. He turns around to this huge crowd and gives them a message in Luke 14 that I am certain that some of them felt like this is the time to run for the door. Because in Luke 14, he three times says, if this is not true, you cannot be my disciples. And the things that he says when, when he makes those statements are shocking. And let me just give you one of them. This is one of the ones. This is the first thing that he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you know, maybe as a, as a brother, if you had sisters, it's, oh, that's easy. I can hate a sister. All right, that's, that's not a problem, hating a brother. But think of this person turning around to that crowd saying, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate these people. He didn't explain it at that moment. I mean, there are other places in the Gospels where the Gospel writers record that the idea of hating is love someone more than me. So he does make it clear in other Gospel presentations. But he includes in that statement and hate your own life also. So the call to be a disciple isn't just to add Jesus to our life, isn't just to become a better person in the community. The call to be a disciple is to be a follower who is willing to hate their own life in this world. And, and again, you know, we're taught as a kid, you don't hate anybody, you don't hate anything. You don't hate broccoli, whatever. All right? I did, but I've, I've since converted over to, I guess, the dark side. I like broccoli now. But hate, what does it mean? I mean, this is essentially what he is calling us to if we are his child, if we are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is my life, my desires, my interests, my objectives, my passions, whatever they may be, they're no longer important. The passions, the objectives, the plans, the desires of Jesus Christ, when I have signed on to be his disciple, I've signed on to put mine aside and make his passions, his desires, his plan for my life be what I live for. That's a disciple. That's what the Great Commission is calling all of us to make and to become and then to continue to make and become. As this church, hopefully someday, Lord willing, as I know that this is a plan, maybe in, I think, the third 
five years of your plan is to start. I think I recall Pastor Ken saying that to start planting churches via this church that was planted. That is the plan. But the challenge for us is too often we miss the point of what a disciple really, really looks like. I mean, we could put it simply this way from what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Jesus said of himself, I do always those things that please the Father. If you want to take a big pile of what it looks like and put it into one simple statement, that's it. I do always what pleases the Father. And if we're living like Christ, that's where we're trying to go. So I want to start with this thought this morning, and then we're going to jump to Acts chapter 13. Simple thought is this. If I'm understanding the gospel, the call to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ is a call to completely release the control of your life. Now, there was a statement before, let go and let God. That's from a whole other issue, and I'm not, that's not exactly what I'm trying to say. The issue is just primarily that if I am a true disciple of Jesus Christ, I am letting go of the control of my life. That is the process of sanctification. Now you're like, well, we're in Acts 13. Where are we trying to go? What we're going to do is we're going to talk about Paul's first missionary journey. You know, sometimes people think missionaries all come, they preach the same messages, and quite frankly, I usually don't do this. Usually I preach something different. But I wanted to just start here in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas go off on their first missionary journey, and then as we just make a few observations about it, launch to one statement in Acts chapter 15 about these two men, Paul and Barnabas. Look, if you would, beginning in Acts chapter 13, uh, in verse 1. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Very simple. Very simple and yet very profound. Um, this is the beginning of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. It took the death of Stephen to move it from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. But now it takes the work of the Spirit to prompt this church, the first missionary sending church, Antioch, to begin to send people to places even further outside of that to continue the Great Commission. So the Holy Spirit, through the church, which is essentially saying this for Community Baptist Church, as you pray, as your pastor even prayed this morning, as you pray that God will do that, it will be the Spirit of God prompting the hearts of God's people in this church to rise up and go and do that and for this church to send them. That's his plan. It's a real simple plan that they followed. What I, what I notice as you look through this, and we don't have time to go through the whole journey, and you're probably glad because we're going to, it's like taking three years and seven churches and packing it into about ten minutes. Um, and, and, and honestly, I just want to give you two thoughts of what happens on this first missionary journey. Acts chapter 13 and 14 tells us of the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas went on. I'll simply say this, and, and this is probably the first overview statement of what happens on the first missionary journey. And for us being missionaries to China, quite honestly, in some respects, it's very convicting and challenging. Because when you look at that first missionary journey, it was very rapid and very intense. And when you stop and think about it, they essentially planted seven churches 
in three years. They didn't have airplanes. They had boats, but they were pretty slow compared to boats today. They didn't have cars. They didn't have motorcycles. They had really slow transportation. But in three years approximately, seven churches were planted. And I say seven churches were planted. The gospel didn't just go. It went, and as they went from place to place, their goal was to establish churches. So they leave from Antioch. They go west. They land at the island of Cyprus. And the island of Cyprus, they start on the east end of the island. They work to the west end, hit two cities there, plant churches. They move on. They go north, take a boat to Perga. When they land in Perga, as that ministry continues on here in Acts chapter 13, we find that John Mark, who was a part of that team that wasn't listed, but we find he was a part of that mission team, he leaves and goes back to Jerusalem. It most likely was not for good reasons because there's a big argument and God even allows that to be put in the scripture. At the end of Acts chapter 15, a big argument between Paul and Barnabas that splits that team. Splits it, but obviously in God's providence in a good way. Paul and Silas move on. Barnabas didn't just drop the ball and fade off in the sunset. Most likely he partnered up and worked with John Mark because one of the last things that Paul says when he ends his life in his very last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, John Mark, he's profitable to me for the ministry. So even as God used that to split them off, God still had a good plan for what was going on. John Mark leaves. They continue on planting all these churches, working through this region. After they get through all seven of these churches, then they work their way back through these churches to do two things. To encourage these new believers in Christ and to appoint elders, to appoint leaders of these churches. The churches are not complete. The believers are not complete. There are many, many mission agencies that are sending people to go to share the gospel, to make disciples. But if that mission agency, if that organization, if that group of, the pe group of people do not have in mind that the end goal, the end plan in God's mind is not just making disciples and then just taking off, and discipling them for a couple of years, the end plan must be resulting in a church. A church that has baptized believers joined together, led by a man who has been called by God. That's what they did. And they did that in about three years with incredibly slow transportation by our standards, even looking out the windows as the car zipped by. Um, can you imagine what they could have done uh, I guess with a Lamborghini, you know, going from place to place. It would have been a little rough on probably a lot of the roads at that time 2,000 years ago. But they did this in an incredible way. So it was rapid and intense, this ministry they went through. But the other part that I want us to see that I want to take a couple chances to look at of this missionary journey, we don't have time to look at all of them, was that this first missionary journey had mixed results for this mission team. And that is... God did amazing things, but it was a bumpy ride. It was not an easy ride uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Let's look at just three of those churches. Let's look at the fourth of the seven, Antioch and Pisidia. Look at Acts chapter 13, uh, down to verse 14. It says in verse 14, From Perga they went, on to, they went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent, to the, sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Paul stands up. He preaches a message. 
The message is a powerful message. And if you look at the book of Luke or the book of Acts, as Luke wrote, most likely uh, Paul's messages, Peter's messages that are recorded there are probably not the whole message, uh, knowing Paul, because Paul could even preach till midnight, as we see in the book of Luke. And somebody could fall out of a window because he preached so long. But the message that he did preach was powerfully, powerfully used by God. It says in verse, look down as you get to the end of this message. It says in verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So in this fourth city that they've come to, they have such a positive response. Almost the whole city comes to hear this message. Most likely what was just said was some of them were converted on that first message that first week. Many more became converted afterwards. But as is always the case, when there is success, there is, and I say success in a biblical definition of success, there is always opposition. And the opposition comes from the religious leaders. It begins in these following verses where the Jews stir up the people and they get them to get rid of Paul and Barnabas. And Paul's words to them was, all right, we will turn from the Jews. We will go only to the Gentiles. Look, if you would, at verses 48 and 49 of this same chapter. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. So as a result of this, of this fourth church, he preaches a message. It is a powerful impact. People come to Christ the first week. The whole city comes the next week. They hear this message. More come to Christ. But opposition comes. Intense opposition. Opposition that will plague and follow Paul all throughout his missionary journeys. But it wasn't just one of those, you know, okay, I'm kind of tired of this stuff. This is a lot rougher road than I thought. He continues on. And it made clear that God's ministry for him was not primarily to the Jews. His ministry was primarily to the rest of the nations. And so he continues on. His fifth city is Iconium. Look at chapter 14. Here's where the fifth, sixth, and seventh churches are established. Fifth city, beginning in verse 1, it says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Man, it's like every city, it's, as the joke has been, whenever Paul and Barnabas went to a city, either, either a riot broke out or revival. Well, in this case, it was a revival, and I wouldn't say revival, more like a vival, um, in the sense of people truly trusting Christ, and then the riot breaks out after the fact. Because as he preaches this, many, it says, a good number of both Jews and Greeks believe, but look at verse 5. Matter of fact, go back to verse 4. It says, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their teachers, to mistreat them and stone them. They're on their way. But enough people have come to faith in Christ. Enough people have become true disciples of Christ that they can move on. And they will come back. They will come back to the city and encourage them and establish leaders. Let's go to the sixth city. I just picked three of them. Lystra, the next one. Look at verse 7. 
a matter of fact, go back to verse 6. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. They were threatened with stoning, but when they moved to the next city, they continued on. One of the things we discussed among ourselves last few weeks when we were with many of these other missionaries going to many places is there's always a fine line between faith and foolishness. What is that fine line? Um, is, is it foolish to go to a dangerous part of the world? Is it foolish for Chinese people to leave their, their relative comfort, and I say relative comfort under a communist government, to be missionaries to North Korea, which North Korea today is what China was 50 years ago, an incredibly dark and oppressive place where people live in incredible secrecy if they are believers. Um, that's the question they have to ask. Chinese believers have had for a long time a sense of urgency to take the gospel to the western parts of China and into the border countries of China, which are heavily Arabic and Muslim countries, the Stan countries, because two things. Number one, they aren't afraid to suffer, many of them. There's becoming a generation, though, that is becoming contaminated by American movies, TV, and everything through the Internet, the young generation. But there is a generation that understood to live for Christ, to follow Christ, to take the gospel, involves suffering. And they're not afraid of that. As well as Chinese have a much better relationship with Muslim, Arabic countries than Americans do. Americans, we are the bad people. But there's a good relationship. So they've had a burden. They've got people in China in locations studying Arabic to prepare them to go to these fields. The question we might ask if we were parents seeing our kids go there or adults going there, is is that faith or is that foolishness? And Paul would just say it's faith, and we'll let the foolishness part be decided by God. Um, you, could, you could take the story of uh, William Borden. If you can ever read a, an amazing biography of a young man who looked like he stepped over the line from faith to foolishness, it's the story of William Borden. Wealthy family, graduated in 1904 as a 16-year-old young man. His parents sent him. And your parents, you know, you think he'd give you a car. His parents sent him on a trip around the world at 16 years of age in 1904. Quite a trip. Went all around the world, but what did that do? It built in his heart a desire to take the gospel to the nations and eventually to go to China. He never quite made it. When he was 25 years old, finished all of his training, he stopped in, in Egypt to study Arabic, and there he contracted a disease that within a month killed him. He never made it to China. But his life was an inspiration to many, and many people would have thought he stepped over the line from faith to foolishness. This is just foolish because he threw away everything. He threw away a great education. He threw away the wealth of the Borden family. And most of us older people, when we say Borden, we know Elsie the cow and all that kind of stuff. That's the family. They were wealthy in the early 1900s. That's what Paul was facing. And yet Paul did not deter from that course because his mission was to continue to spread that gospel. And here in Lystra, they heal a crippled man. And that you thought would be a good thing. But instead, the people think that they're Jupiter or Mercury, and now they're going to worship them. And they go from worshiping them to trying to kill them. And Paul is stoned, but he moves on. Now, that was a very quick flyover of just bits and pieces of that first missionary journey. It was very rapid and intense, and it had mixed results. The positive results in every city was there was a church established. 
And if you noticed in part of what we read this morning, it was starting to tentacle out to the other regions. So that's why Paul and Romans could say, I have preached the gospel. I've, I've taken it to these areas. I can move on. Not because every city had been reached, but as he hit key cities, the gospel continued to tentacle out as it should, and other people were coming to Christ. They come back after this missionary journey, and now you understand, if you read these, if you read these three chapters, you'll understand a lot about why missionaries do what they do. They're sent by the church, and when they come back, they should report to the church, as we do, as you just saw a little bit of that this morning. They came back to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, to report what was going on. They share what God was doing. The church rejoiced with them. But when they were there in Acts chapter 15, in the city of Antioch, their home church, there was a dispute between the Judaizers in that church. And if you understand the Judaizers, they were simply, if we can put it this way, is trying to add works to the gospel. We would say that a person, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, it is faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. It's not faith in Christ plus something or things that you will do. It is faith alone in Christ alone. The Judaizers were trying to add faith in Christ plus, 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 plus. There is no plus because there's nothing we can do. If there is something we can do, then the merit and the value of Jesus Christ becomes worthless. But the value and merit of Jesus Christ is of infinite worth and is the only way we could ever be accepted by God is through Jesus Christ. So this was a huge issue. So they sent Paul and Barnabas and a few other brothers down to Jerusalem to discuss this. They discussed it, they made a decision, and they sent a letter back. We're finally getting to where I want to get to. And you're like, wow, aren't you about running out of time? Well, you don't know unless you've been looking at your watches, and some of you are right now. Here's the letter. In Acts chapter 15. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to read the whole letter. In this letter, it's a brief explanation of what the leaders in Jerusalem said should be done to instruct this church in Antioch. But I want to draw our attention. Oh, there is a clock. It's right there. I never saw that. But I, don't, I want to draw our attention to really one statement that was made in the midst of that letter, which is a very powerful statement for us as we consider what a disciple should be. Look, if you would, in verse 23 and following. It says, when, uh, With them they sent the following letter, The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greeting. We have heard that some went out from us without our author authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there I stop. It's that statement. It's going to talk about what the issue was. But in the midst of that statement, even though there were other brothers that were a part of this group that went to Jerusalem, they highlight two men, Paul and Barnabas. And here's how they describe these two men. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I will say to you, I admit right away, in our American mindset, here's what we think of when we think of risk. When we think of risk, we think of the X Games, we think of parachuting out of a plane real high, we think of bungee jumping, we think of doing crazy things, because somehow that's the mental picture that comes to our mind with the idea of risk, is just doing something, I mean, it's like watching YouTube and these guys... 
you know, doing this sliding off the roof thing and a guy falls on a table and he's moaning and groaning. I mean, you can see it all. And we think of risk. That's risk. Um, and, and so, unfortunately, when we read into that word, um, most Bibles translate it risk. I think uh, King James translates it hazarded. But it's basically that same idea. It's, it's a risky business. It could be translated that way, but I'm going to give you a sense for what was being said about Paul and Barnabas. What essentially was being said is that they had learned to completely release the control of their lives. And I won't say learned like they had it all figured out and now they can move on. Because I probably should put it was they had learned and were still learning to completely release the control of their lives. And here's why. The word that's used there that describes them is really to hand over to another person, to hand over something. And, and this is probably the best way to picture it, because when we think risk, we can think all those crazy things, things that maybe we once wanted to do, but now it's like, no, thank you. Um, the word is used of Jesus Christ in the Passion Week. When Judas betrays Jesus, that's the same word. Judas is handing Jesus over to somebody else. When Jesus is handed over, delivered to Pilate, the same word is used. He's handed over to Pilate. When Pilate delivers Jesus to the Jews, that same word is used. So three different times in handing over Jesus to someone else, someone else to be in control of their lives, that's what was used of Jesus. That's what they're saying about Paul and Barnabas. These were men who were not thrill seekers trying to live on the edge. They weren't trying to go and get hurt. They weren't trying to cause a stink in a community. That's easy to do. What they were trying to do was tell them the truth, but the enemy wants the truth stopped. And he can cause a stink in the community through us if we're not careful. Um, but the essential thing that they were trying to do wasn't trying to be thrill seekers, living on the edge, and, and really... I've heard said before that if somebody thinks God has called them to the mission field and what drives them is the sense of adventure and thrill, they better stop and think, is that really God calling them? It's not bad if that's a component of it, but if that's the big part of somebody saying, God has called me, I want to do this, there could be a sense where they're missing the point. The point isn't the thrill and the adventure of going to do this. The point is the thrill and the glory of representing the king of kings as an ambassador to this new place. And these men had learned to completely release their life to God. And here's the next part of that phrase. For the sake of, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2002... Um, when I was working at Inner City Baptist High School from 2002 to 2006, and then we headed to China, our theme for that year was a poster that said, Life is not about me. Life is about God. Just a very simple statement. And, and the whole point was to drive home that it doesn't matter if we're teenagers or adults. Life is not about me. Life is about God. That's a theme that's easy. That's a, that's a statement that's easy to quote. It is wickedly hard to live. Um, the, the essential statement of what, what is being said about Paul and Barnabas there was this. They had handed over their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their lives were being given so that Jesus' name would become a well-known name, a famous name. If I said to you, Yao Ming, 
Some of you guys would know who Yao Ming is, all right? Tall Chinese basketball player. If I said that in China, it'd be huge, all right? Nuclear. If I said to you, Li Yang, you'd be like, who is Li Yang? If I said that in China, they would know. Li Yang's famous for a system called Li Yang Crazy English, a system of how to learn English. He became very wealthy in China, teaching people how to speak English through his audio tapes and books and stuff. Now, if I said here in, in America, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, or especially if I was to say right now, Steve Jobs. All right, even people around the world know this guy when he just passed away because Apple has become so big and iPhones and iPads and everything else. I mean, that just went all throughout the world because he had a well-known name. These men, as God was calling them, as God was using them, were men that had learned that being a disciple means I'm willing to hand over the control of my life so that through my life, wherever I am, the name of Jesus Christ becomes a well-known name. Not just a well-known name, but a well-known name that is a glorious name and that's represented that way through my life. And I say that this morning because oftentimes the one thing that just, I think, I don't know if it bugs every missionary, but it can bug me and bug other missionaries as well, is the danger that people think is, all right, here's, here's how church is. You have church people and you got deacons Maybe an assistant pastor, then a pastor, and then missionaries. And it's just like that's how they are in relation to God. And that's just not so. And I'm sure your pastor has made that clear at least a dozen times or a whole lot more in the last ten years. We are in God's sight as God's children equally to be just like Paul and Barnabas. People who are willing to hand over their lives because that's what, if we don't realize it, as becoming a Christian, that's what we did sign on for. We did sign on to give up the control of our lives. And that's not a bad thing. We, we, are, we got this voice constantly telling us it's a bad thing, and most of that isn't the devil that made me do it. It's our desires that still have not changed. But of these men, these men, simply it was put that they had handed over their lives so that the gospel would move forward. And I'll, I'll simply wrap it up this way this morning. And if I say I wrap it up, then the Bible's closed and everybody just mentally checks out. That was a bad thing. So don't do that, please, all right? Two simple thoughts to, to look at whatever generation may be here. Um, the younger generation, the middle-aged generation, the older generation, whoever that may be in this room. Here's what we have to consider when we look at a statement like that about these men and what Jesus said about you cannot be my disciple if this isn't true. The forward movement of the gospel, if the gospel is continued to move forward through Community Baptist Church, through other churches, through places around the world, this must be true. It must be completely clear what a true disciple looks like. If that is not clear in our churches, we will not continue to perpetuate what Paul and Barnabas were doing. And that is people who are willing to let control of their lives be under Jesus Christ in every area. So that the thing that if I could say right now in your heart, what's one thing that you know that God has in the last year, two years, five years, ten years, whatever it may be, what is the one thing you can think right now is the thing that God's been chipping away at your heart about? And the question is, why don't we let go of that one thing or those two things or those three things? Because I know we can all think of at least one thing right now. 
But that's what he's trying to do, because as he does that, then we begin to show what true disciples look like, and we become a brighter light reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ. But as well, the forward movement of the gospel in our generation is ultimately hinged hinged on the willingness to completely let go of our lives, understanding that this is a learned process. This is not simply just, I pray a prayer one time, and I have gone from being a mediocre Christian to now I've stepped up to the plate, I've swung the bat, I'm in the game. Understand, even as you're swinging the bat in the game, you're going to strike out sometimes. We're going to hit a lot of foul balls sometimes. We're going to struggle sometimes. Sometimes we're going to hit the ball and we're going to stumble going to first base and we're going to be out because we stumble trying to go to first base. Because in each of our lives, the challenge is we still we still want to hang on to the control of our lives. But what made Paul and Barnabas such an incredible team was very simple. They had learned to let go of the control of their lives so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ could be known through their lives. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, I'd have to be the first to admit that If anything, you've taught me in these last five years in China is how much more I need to let go of the control of my life. There are so many more things that as we face situations in life, circumstances in life, that they show what is in our heart, good and bad. As we look into the mirror of your word, it shows what's in our heart, good and bad. And that doesn't mean that we should be discouraged and down on ourselves and just sit in a corner and give up. We should hope in and rejoice in your merciful grace, even expressed in the, in the verses that were read this morning from Lamentations, that your mercies are new every day. There is a grace just waiting to be dispensed again today if we will continue to yield. Help us to yield. Help us to recognize what we need to yield, and especially if there's someone here this morning that has not yet yielded fully to Christ in salvation, that you would open their eyes to recognize that Christ is waiting with arms open to receive him and to present him before you as a new child in your name. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.